right, well, good morning. All right, ready to go. I got to tell you, I've been loving this series so far, and I'm excited about today's passage that we're going to look at in today's feast as well. I think for those of you who have been enjoying the series, you're going to love today's teaching. I think for those of you who like history, you're going to love today's teaching. I think for those of you who like seeing what Jesus did and fulfilled and accomplished, you're going to love today's teaching. And if you happen to be my mom or my mother-in-law, you will probably love today's teaching as they tend to like them all. Uh, If you haven't been here for the last several weeks, we're in a series right now called Feast where we're looking at the various feasts that God commanded the Israelites to celebrate every year. He gave them seven different holidays, seven different feasts to celebrate, and in this series, we're focusing in on five of the seven. Next week, we'll look at the festival of Passover, or the Feast of Passover, and that will set the table for Easter the following week, and both of those are going to be great weeks, so you don't want to miss either of those, but today, we're going to focus in on the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what we're going to talk about today, the Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, we're We're going to dive right into it. We read about the Feast of Tabernacles along with all of the other feasts as God kind of passed this on to Moses. And uh, we read about them in the book of Leviticus. And so at this point in the series, you're probably getting pretty good at finding the book of Leviticus. All the millennials in the room are like, yeah, I just pull out my phone and say, hey Siri, show me Leviticus. And that works. Um, For those of you who bring a a physical Bible, it's the third book from the beginning. And so if you want to open to the 23rd chapter, uh, as I said, we're going to jump right into the text today and kind of start out by reading this together. Um, Or you don't have to read this with me. I just mean read along with me. Um, uh, So we read in verse 33, uh, verses 33 and 34, that the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's feast of tabernacles begins and it lasts for seven days now right off the bat some of the astute among us have thought well I remember some of the dates from the other feasts and it seems like a lot of these came in the seventh month the rest of us probably the most of us thought yeah I didn't catch that that just went over my head I didn't catch the dates from the other ones but but yes a lot of the feasts came in the seventh month the seventh month was a key month for them Uh, the seventh month began with the feast of trumpets which we looked at two weeks ago that feast kicked off what are known as the high holy days or the days of awe at the end of the high holy days they celebrated Yom Kippur the day of atonement which we looked at last week and then five days after the day of atonement they celebrated the feast of tabernacles which was really a giant giant week-long party. We're given more details about it in verse 39. Beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, that's key, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, and the eighth day also is a day of rest. On the first day, you are to take choice fruit from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. The next part is super interesting. God says, live in booths for those seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. All right, now together this morning, we're going to unpack all the details here, and we're going to see how it applies to us today. But don't miss the overarching point that the Feast of Tabernacles was really at its core a, a huge celebration. At its core, they were setting aside one entire week to celebrate all that God had provided for them. 
And because the cel- this holiday celebrated a variety of things that God had provided for them, the holiday took on several names throughout Scripture. You may see this referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles. It's sometimes called the, F- the Festival of Booths. It's called the Feast of Ingathering. And the Hebrew term for it is Sukkot, which literally translates hut or tabernacle or booth. Now, in addition to the official names that it was called and referred to, sometimes as you read in Scripture, you will, simply called, uh, you will see it simply called the festival. So you're reading along, and it'll say something like, Jesus and his disciples were headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. And you'll think, well, wait, which of the festivals? Weren't there seven? Yes, there were seven. But if it just says the festival, they're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles because it was the biggest and best of all of them. It's kind of like how we refer to the Ohio State University as the Ohio State University because it's the biggest and best, right? No, okay. All right, well, we'll agree to disagree. Um, Because it was such a huge celebration, this was one of three pilgrimage holidays along with Passover and Pentecost. It was a pilgrimage holiday. So anybody who was living in Israel and had the means would do everything they can to celebrate this holiday in the city of Jerusalem because it's just more fun. It's so much more fun to be in a city filled with all the people. The city of Jerusalem would be completely transformed for this week. It would be decorated beautifully. There would be music playing in the streets all week long. The city would be filled with these temporary huts that people had built and were living in for this week. It was a week of rejoicing and celebration and gratitude and joy as they remembered and celebrated all of God's blessings in their lives. Now, just a side note for what it's worth. If I could start a new American holiday, I think that this is what it would be. I think that we have been so incredibly blessed by God. I think how cool would it be to have an entire week-long festival that we celebrated as a community to, to give thanks for all of that. I know that's kind of what the heart is behind Thanksgiving, right? But Thanksgiving's just one day. And, and typically, we end up spending it with our family, overeating for one meal, and then falling asleep as the, as the Lions lose another football game. Um, and that's great, but I just think, how great would it be if this could be a week-long festival that we celebrated as an entire community? I think that would be so great. And actually, this is still one of the biggest holidays every year in the city of Jerusalem for the Jewish people. Uh, As I was researching this holiday, I came across a video on YouTube, because that's where I do all my sermon prep, on YouTube. And um, no, that's not true. Some of you, don't get worried, that's not true. Uh, But I did, I went to YouTube, and I, I, actually, the reason I went to YouTube was because I wanted to make sure that I was pronouncing it correctly. And so I was like, well, let me see how, you know, Jewish people pronounce this. And um, I'm good. But anyway, I found a video, I came across a video that was put together by an Israeli tourism company inviting people to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And I thought, this video is so great because it gives a glimpse into what, what life is like that week in Jerusalem. And so I thought it's only two minutes long. Let me just show it to the church so you can get an idea for it as well. So take a look at this quick video on the Feast of Tabernacles. the city of Jerusalem turns green and yellow. And despite our deep historical ties with the state of Wisconsin and our well-known affinity for cheese, this has nothing to do with the Green Bay Packers. 
Throughout the city, families build these little booth-like huts that they live in throughout the holiday. They have a citron fruit and a date palm, it's called a lulav and an etrog in Hebrew, that we use to worship God on the holiday of Sukkot. To the untrained eye, the overwhelming sensations on the holiday of Sukkot may be so extreme that they may not notice a very curious phenomenon. The Gentiles. Shalom, Goyim. Shalom to you. In the midst of a biblical holiday celebrated exclusively by the Jewish people, today we see as many, if not more, non-Jews making the voyage to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot. The last time we saw anything like this, representation from all nations of the world, was in Solomon's temple over 3,500 years ago. It shall be that all who are left over, the remnant of the nations who had come to Jerusalem, will go up every year to worship the King Hashem, Master of Legions, and to celebrate the festival of Sukkot. People aren't just coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. There are families all over the world from different backgrounds, different religious affiliations, that are building little huts outside their homes, freaking out their neighbors, all to celebrate the biblical festival of Sukkot. Like all things in Judaism, there are some rules that apply to building a sukkah. Through the Hebrew word sukkah as written in the Torah, we're able to see that a sukkah may have two and a half, three, or preferably four walls. The height of a sukkah cannot exceed 20 cubits, while the width cannot exceed infinity. That's right, a sukkah can be as wide as you want. The laws of building a sukkah reveal the essence of the holiday. A sukkah can be as expansive as possible to include as many people as possible, because one day the entire world will leave the security of their homes and enter into the ultimate sukkah in Jerusalem. Hope to see you there. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Anybody catch the shofar at the beginning? People blowing the shofars in the street? Yeah, there you go. Well, as I said, the general purpose for this holiday is a time to reflect on all that God has provided for us and to celebrate that. Now, specifically, the celebration revolved around three key elements that were represented by the huts that we just saw, water, and light. And so I'm going to talk about each of these individually here for a minute. The first element were the huts that they would build and live in for this week. And I've read that one of the coolest places to be in the United States is in Brooklyn, New York during the Feast of Tabernacles because these sukkah pop up all over the city, kind of in random places, wherever people who want to celebrate the holiday can fit them. And so I pull a couple pictures uh, offline. Uh, this is an apartment building where people are building them on their balconies, right? They pop up on the city streets or sidewalks, not the streets, in the sidewalks um, next to the streets. Here's another apartment building. And then there's also some really artistic ones that are, are the city gives permission to kind of put up in, in kind of communal areas, parks and areas for recreation or open spaces like this. And that's kind of an example of one of those that would be open to the public. Now, the, the question would be, well, what are they remembering or what are they celebrating with, the, with these huts? Why are they living in these? Well, the huts were a reminder of the way that God had provided shelter for their ancestors when they had been led out of slavery in Egypt and were walking towards the promised land while they were living in the wilderness for 40 years. It was a reminder that even when these people had nothing, when they had no homes, when they had no jobs, when they had no income, when they had no permanent shelters and they were living in a desert, even then God met their physical needs. God provided for their physical needs. The huts were symbolic of the way that he had taken care of them and he had made sure that they, they had everything that they needed, right? But it was actually deeper than that as well because while they were in the wilderness, God said, not only am I going to provide for your physical needs, but he said, I want to dwell with you. 
I want to be in your midst. I want, to, I want you to have a place where you can worship me in my presence. And so they built a, a larger temporary structure called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle is where God dwelled among the people and where they could worship him. But it was temporary. And so every time they would move and kind of move their settlement and their camp from one area to the next, as they got closer and closer to inheriting the promised land, they would take the tabernacle down, they would move it, and then they would reassemble it. But it was temporary. And so once they inherited the promised land and once they settled in, in Jerusalem or what would become Jerusalem, they built a permanent structure in the temple and God dwelled with them in the Holy of Holies. Living in huts for a week is a celebration of the way that God had provided for both their physical needs and the way that he had provided for their spiritual needs by dwelling with them. Now check this out. When we jump to the New Testament, one of Jesus' disciples, John, gets to the end of his life and he's thinking about all that Jesus did and all that Jesus said and all that Jesus fulfilled. And when he sits down to write his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus, look how he begins it in John chapter 1. In verse 14, he's talking about Jesus and he says, The Word, being Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. One of the things that John wanted to make clear was that Jesus was the next step in God's plan to dwell with us, his creation. Ever since the very beginning, God had longed to dwell with his creation. And instead of him saying, you have to figure out a way to dwell with me, he said, I am going to find a way to dwell with you. That is such an incredible thought in and of itself that God loves us so much. He wants to dwell with us. But no physical structure would ever be enough. God doesn't want to dwell in one place at one time with, with just the people who show up there. And when Jesus arrived, everything changed. And Jesus promised, he said, after I go back to being with the Father, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and you will literally have the Spirit of God everywhere you go at all times. It would be the, the culmination of God's desire to dwell with us on this side of eternity. No longer would you have to be in the, a holy place to be in the presence of God. We could live our lives in the presence of God every moment of every day. And if that wasn't enough, when Jesus was talking to his disciples about their need to, their, or how there was no need to worry or be afraid of the future, when he was talking to them about what eternity would hold, he came back to this very idea. Look at what John records him saying in chapter 14. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus' promise of what heaven would hold was focused around this idea that we would have the joy of dwelling in the presence of God for all of eternity. And today, that is exactly what we have been invited into. We have been invited to live our lives in the presence of God, to dwell with him and to enjoy him dwelling with us. We have the joy of knowing that everywhere we go, no matter what we face in life, we have the God of the universe with us, and we know that makes all the difference because there is no problem that he can't solve. There is no obstacle that he cannot overcome. There is no disease that he can't heal. There is no bill that he can't pay. There is no limit to his knowledge or power or greatness or his love. And he looks at us 
tiny, little, broken, insignificant, unworthy us. And he humbly asks us, can I dwell with you? Will you dwell with me? That's crazy. Why would he ask that of us? Why would God want to dwell with us? What do we have to offer him? What would God want to dwell with us for? Because that is how much he radically loves you. And my friends, that is cause for celebration. The second component of the Feast of Tabernacles, I said, was water. Each year, this festival would happen after the harvest was brought in. It was a celebration that God had allowed their crops to grow. And they recognized each year during the Festival of Tabernacles that it had been God who provided fertile soil. It had been God who gave them seeds to plant. It had been God who allowed the sun to shine. And it had been God who caused water to rain down and fuel that growth. I don't know how many farmers we have in the church these days, But historically, one of the worst things that could happen to a farmer was a drought, right? There are a lot of problems that you can work around on a farm, but not having water is not one of them. It's pretty hard to grow a plant without water. Keep in mind the part of the world that we're talking about here. This is not a lush tropical rainforest where water is plenty, right? This was an arid climate. They were desperate for the rain. And so each year when they would bring in the harvest, they would celebrate that God had provided water to grow those crops because they recognized the water God had provided literally was the thing that stood between them and starvation. And so during the festival, we know that water was drawn from a special spring on the edge of Jerusalem, and each day it was brought to the temple for a giant water ceremony. And we believe this is the ceremony that was referenced by Isaiah in chapter 12, where he wrote, With joy, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Now notice that what Isaiah was doing with the joy of drawing water, he was tying it not only to their physical needs, but again, he was tying it to their spiritual need for salvation. Just like with the huts, this was a celebration that God had provided for their physical needs. Man's got to eat, right? Need the crops to grow. So it was a celebration that God had provided for their physical needs, but it was more than that. It was a celebration that God had provided for their spiritual needs. And again, this carries over to Jesus. When Jesus began what is arguably the greatest sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, he began with a series of statements that we refer to as the Beatitude Statements. And they begin, blessed are those, you know, and it goes through a series of of different types of people or different uh, characteristics, but one of those is blessed are those who hunger and what? Thirst. Yeah, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When Jesus met with the woman, uh, Samaritan woman at the well, as she was drawing water, this is what Jesus said to her about water in John chapter 4. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And it was during the Feast of Tabernacles, we are told explicitly by John, that it was during the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus stood up among the crowds and he said this, John 7, 
On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, right? They're doing this water ceremony. And he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. We all know what it means to be thirsty. I'm getting kind of thirsty right now, actually. <laughs> um, my kids know, especially at bedtime, right? <laughs> Any parents relate to this? I don't know what it is, but it seems like this is what always happens. After we go through the long and tedious process of getting my kids into bed, right? Tucked in, lights out, door cracked, just the perfect amount. I'll sit down on the couch, and then all of a sudden my kids come walking out all nonchalant like, what, Dad? Got to get a glass of water. And I'm like, son, you didn't drink water all day. I think you were saving your thirst for this moment, right? I mean, for real. I don't think I've ever seen my kids pour themselves a glass of water during the day. But inevitably, once it comes to bedtime, suddenly they're like an empty camel, and they got to fill up that dry hump on their back, which means they're going to be up again in a couple hours having to pee, Right? So we all know what it feels like to be thirsty. We can all, you know, relate to that. We know what it feels like to be both physically thirsty and thirsty spiritually. Some of us remember what it felt like to be thirsty before we placed our faith in Christ. Some of you, no doubt, are there now. Maybe that's what brought you to church this morning, is you're feeling thirsty spiritually. Maybe you wouldn't articulate it that way, but maybe that's what it is. Maybe there's something in you going, man, is there something more here? Am I missing something? There feels like, I don't know, I can't put my finger on it, but it's like, is there more to this life than what I'm experiencing? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is more. Absolutely. You were made for more than that. Jesus said he came to offer life, life to the full, the abundant life. And he promised living water that wells up within us to eternal life. He said a steady stream that just keeps flowing, that, that quenches our dry and thirsty spirit. This is the invitation that Jesus extends to every single one of us to, to, to follow him, to place our faith in him, and to be filled with that living water. And again, for those of us who have done that, who have experienced that living water, this is cause for celebration. The third component of the Feast of Tabernacles were ceremonies revolving light. In the book of Genesis, Genesis 1-1 begins by saying that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and darkness covered the expanse. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. Fast forward to, again, when the Israelites were being led out of slavery in Egypt, headed for the promised land. And in the book of Exodus, we read about how God miraculously led the people in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire or light at night. During the Feast of Tabernacles, up until the time when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, huge candelabras were put up at the temple, which would illuminate it more than at any other time of the year. Because the temple was built on top of a hill, it would light up the city surrounding it below it, and you'd be able to see the light of the temple for miles and miles in all directions. The temple was literally the light of their world. 
During the celebrations of this week, men would dance in the outer courts of the temple under the light while music was played and the water was poured out. This was not a normal, everyday occurrence. Seeing Jewish holy men dance in the temple uh, courts under the lights was, was not a normal sight. The Talmud, which is a Jewish holy text still read today, has a line about this moment, about this ceremony, about the temple illumination and the water being poured out. And of this moment, the Talmud says, he who has not beheld this celebration has never seen joy in his life. The Jewish people were celebrating the light that they had been given. They were celebrating the light of the temple with God dwelling in it, it being the light of the world. And again, John tells us that it was in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus stood up and we read that when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus was again fulfilling another aspect of this feast, fulfilling the third component of this feast. They thought of God as the light. They thought of the temple where God dwelled as the light. And here is Jesus in the midst of this enormous celebration that Jesus says, I am the light. And just like they had followed a pillar of light at night in the wilderness, Jesus said, whoever follows me will never walk in in darkness. One last time, let me bring this home for us. In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul talks about what God has done, how he has brought us out of the darkness and into the light. And this is what we read in Colossians chapter 1. Give joyful thanks to the Lord. Again, we're called to give joyful thanks to the Lord, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of what? Light, yes, in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We have been rescued from the dominion of darkness, and we have been given an inheritance in the kingdom of light. This is cause for celebration. Over the course of this series, we've been looking at the feasts that God gave to the Israelites thousands of years ago. Obviously, as American Christians, we do not celebrate these feasts today, right? But the principles behind them apply to us incredibly well. In particular, the Feast of Tabernacles was one awesome week set aside to remember and celebrate all of God's blessings in their lives, And we want to be people who do that same thing today. We want to be people who reflect on and recognize and celebrate all of God's blessings in our lives as well. Now, we may not be able to take an entire week to do this. We may not gather every single day here at the church to do it. But what we can do is we can tee this up this morning and then all of us can choose to make this next week, to make the next seven days a week of reflecting and celebrating on all of God's blessings in our lives. And I would argue that the three things we just looked at would be a fantastic place to start. Think about it. God is... Has, has, has provided a way for us to dwell with him. That's incredible. 
Because of that, we will never face anything alone. We have the God of the universe right there by our side at all times. We have been given living water. We remember what life was like before we received that. We tried everything the world had to offer to see if anything could quench our thirst. But what we found was that nothing could do the job long term. Not until we met Jesus. But when, when we met him, we placed our faith in him and we received living water. And now we know what it feels like to not be thirsty any longer. And we've been brought out of the darkness into the light. We no longer have to carry around the weight of, 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 of shame and guilt that comes from sin. We no longer live in the shadows trying to hide from the truth. We know the joy and the freedom of living life in the open, in the light. And those three things are just the beginning of God's blessings in our lives. And it's just the beginning of the ways that he has provided for us. We have been given everything we need to fulfill God's plans and purposes for our lives. We have been made a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We're a new creation in Christ. We have been adopted into the family of God. And we have been surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who love us and care for us. We have all been given gifts and abilities and talents and a role to play. God has given each of us a spot to serve and to work and to build his kingdom in our community. And we have the confidence of knowing that when we serve in even the smallest ways, God is there working and empowering through his Holy Spirit the impact that we will make. And in doing so, we get to live beyond ourselves and we get to make an impact with our one and only life. We have been invited to be God's hands and feet to our community. How crazy awesome is that? In his name, thank you, in his name, we get to feed the hungry. In his name, we get to clothe the naked. In his name, we get to offer help and hope to people who are hurting. Because of the way that God has changed us, we get to celebrate the differences in people that cause other people to, to be scared and to push away from each other. Because of the way he has changed us, he gives us eyes to see beauty where other people are blind to the beauty. Because of the way he has changed us, we get to tear down divides where other people want to put them up. God has provided for us in so many ways. We have so much to celebrate. There is no dream you can dream that is too big for God to fulfill. And there is no concern that you carry that is too small for him to want to, to have you bring it to him. There is not a hair on your head that God himself has not counted. He cares about every little detail of who you are and what you are going through. There is nothing that you will face without him. He has plans for you. He has a future for you. And he is constantly inviting you to dwell with him so that he can tell you about those plans. We have been blessed. And that is cause for celebration. Now what we're, what we're going to do as we wrap this up today is, is we're not going to build a bunch of sukkahs, right? That would be cool. But we don't really have the space here to do that. And so what we're going to do is I want to try to bring this home for us. I want to try to tee this up. And my hope and my prayer is that you would choose to make this next week a week of reflecting on how God has blessed you and that you would celebrate that. 
And so below your chair, every chair, there should be a card and a pen. I want to invite you to reach down right now and grab that and just take a look at it. This card should say, today I'm grateful for, and then there's room to list out uh, uh, things that come to mind. In just a minute, I'm going to give us uh, some space. I want to give you just two or three minutes to simply sit and reflect on your life and on how God has blessed you. I want to invite you to get specific. Don't just say family, friends, job, right? We could all do that, but I want to invite you to get specific. One of the things that I love about the the Feast of Tabernacles was God gave the people some tangible, concrete things to remind them of his blessings for them. I want you to have a tangible, concrete reminder yourself. So I want to invite Blessing, our sound guy, to play something here in the background. You got some music you can play or something. There you go. Love that when you just ask for it and it's right there. It's the thing of beauty. So I'm going to shut up and sit down and I want to give you a few minutes to talk with God and to just think and pray and ask yourself, how have I seen God work? What has he done in my life? And in just a few minutes, then I'll come back up. I'm going to invite the band to come back up and we'll close our services with one last opportunity to worship God through song. Lord, we are so grateful. We recognize that everything that we have, everything that's good in our life, every breath we take, every beat of our heart is sustained by you. And it is by your grace that we're here. And so Lord, collectively this morning, we want to simply say thank you. We want to worship you as we recognize that, as we remember that, and as we celebrate that. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone who agreed said amen. Well, I want to invite you to take this list and to let it just be a start of something that you carry on this week, that you would carve out some time to sit down and reflect and to continue to write. Come up with a list of just everything that comes to mind of God's blessings in your life and how he has provided for you. And if I might add, maybe at the top of that list, you simply write, the cross. Because what Jesus did in going to the cross for us, it accomplished what we could never do. It bridged the gap between us and a holy, heavenly Father. No amount of good works could ever bridge that gap, and God recognized that. And so into that situation and into our mess, he sent his son to lay down his life, only to take it back up again. And in doing so, to conquer sin and death once and and for all on behalf of anyone who would ever want to receive that eternal life, that living water, that inheritance of light. So let's reflect on that and celebrate that as I invite you to stand right now as we close our times with one last song of worship. that lay between us how high the mountain I could not climb in desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul the work is finished the end is written 
Oh, Jesus Christ, my living Lord. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Oh, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Come on, let's sing this together. Oh, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. together let's just lift our voices and then came the morning that sealed the promise oh your very body began to Oh 